invite you all to take out your copy of the New Testament Scriptures and turn to the fourth gospel, John's gospel. We're in chapter 5, and we're working our way through what is known as uh, one of Jesus' more profound uh, discourses from verse 17 to 47. is all one long discourse that's just loaded with proof of his divinity, his equality with God. He was equal with God, this God that we know as our triune God. We worship one God in Trinity, and that Trinity in unity. And so we're looking at, as we looked at last week, the similarities that the Father and the Son have in their co-equality, in their co-essence, one in essence or substance, and co-eternal as well, lacking nothing, neither of the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, lack any equality. There's no hierarchy there. There's no one is um, uh, more uh, looked at as more valuable or in a greater role than the other. They all have different offices within the Trinity that they function in, And we're seeing the similarities as we saw last week, the relationship that the the Son has with the Father, that Jesus has with the Father, God. And it's amazing when we looked at the six areas that He and the Father are equal in, equal in works, equal in will, equal in love, equal in life, equal in authority, equal in honor, as we looked at all of those, just in those seven brief verses we had last week in that sermon entitled, Like Father, Like Son. And so he's going further now. He's going much deeper. There's some profundity here. Clearly, there's going to be something so eye-opening and head-spitting that it's going to have their undivided attention in the things that he's saying in these uh, next six or seven verses. So he's going deeper. He's, He's descending into profound doctrinal areas that are going to challenge everybody's minds, perhaps even our own. But I want to start somewhere first before we can get some preliminaries out of the way. First of all, mankind is born with two constituent parts, if you want to look at it that way, made up of two uh, 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 senses. Their ontology is both spiritual and physical, both spiritual and physical. Uh, When Adam sinned in the garden, it's important to understand that Adam and all those who would come after him, whether you believe in the federal headship view, the seminal headship view, the bottom line is the same, that all human beings are born sinners from Adam. So spiritually, at that moment of the disobedience between Adam and Eve, our first parents, they were struck spiritually blind. They couldn't discern spiritual things anymore. Those who walked in the immediacy of God's presence, God is spirit. So they had a sense of his being among them. You could say spiritually they could see him. We, these are hard things for us to grasp because we're born spiritual stillborns ourselves because of the fall. That's why they ran and hid and used fig leaves to cover themselves up as though they could hide from God. That's why God asked the question, he's omniscient. He didn't need to ask where they were, but he asks anywhere, where are you? Where are you? You see, something very profound happened there, and that's the spiritual death of God's creation, mankind. 
but they were alive physically. Adam lived almost a millennium. He lived just short of a thousand years physically. It's important to understand that as we unfold what we're about to read here as we read uh, verses 24 to 29 in this discourse. So we want to look at that and then we'll pick up and carry on from there after prayer. So let's begin in verse 24. We left off in verse 23 last week and we'll read through verse 29. Listen carefully. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Father, thank you. Um, We are humbled by the profundity, by the weightiness of what you've just disclosed to us in these short verses. Oh, how they must have been struck, stunned, that heard you in person. No less should we be stunned had we not been familiar with these verses already. Help us, Lord, to to understand them rightly, to, to approach these doctrines correctly, that we might grow. We can't grow on misunderstood doctrine. It is pure orthodoxy by which are the means, together with your Holy Spirit, that we grow into likeness to Christ, as you are in this great reclamation project this redemptive enterprise of human souls and so lord we need your help i need your help be with us now we pray that you might receive glory in the greater knowledge that we gain here in this house here today in christ's name we pray amen so this portion of the scripture, as I said, is, is stunning. I mean, it's stunning in terms of the declarations that Jesus is making here regarding the spiritual and physical resurrections. He's talking about them both. We have to break them down as we go. He's tripping through like it's nothing. It's rolling off of his tongue, just one verse after the next. And then he's done and he moves on to other things. And we're going, whoa, these are waterfalls each. These are cliffs. Stop. Let's look and see what this is saying for a moment. Because, oh Lord, you know our limitations and you set the parameters of our capacities. Oh Lord, broaden them that we might embrace your glory all the more. That we want for your sake, oh Lord. Amen. So the ramifications of these judgments are staggering. This Power over life, death, and destiny, as this sermon is entitled, is 
Amazing. I, I've broken it down. There's six verses, and I've broken it down into three sections for us so that we can take it a section at a time. We think in boxes. We think in, in narrow capacities because that's all that we can handle. We'll do our best to try to do that in the time we have. First of all, we're going to look at this Jesus who holds the power of life, death, and in him lies your eternal destiny. Can you think of anything more important here this morning or any day, any morning for that matter? These are the most important things we could be looking at in our human experience right here. First of all, we're going to look at verse 24 and 25, the resurrection of the spirit of man. So this isn't the Holy Spirit. This is the spiritual dead needs to rise. Okay, that's the first two verses. Second, we're going to look at the reconciliation of the soul of man. How is it that the entirety of man, because we see a judgment, we see the Lord raising up the spirit of man, and we now we're also witness to him resurrecting dead bodies out of the graves, literally. And those together are the human soul, the entirety of man, the whole comprehensive. He wants it all. It all belongs to him. And so he's after it all. And he will get it all. He will raise us up, all of us. That's the reconciliation of the soul of man. And then third, the retribution of the sovereign to all mankind. We're going to do our best to get through this today. But we'll see what God has in mind, shall we? And that's verses 28 and 29. Let's get started. First of all, the resurrection of the spirit of man. So we're spiritually dead and blind. We're born the enemies of God out of the gate, as Ephesians 2 tells us. So what must be done? Well, let's find out. Verse 24. Truly, truly. And remember, when he starts out with those two words, it's as though we would say, listen, wait a second, hold on, look at me. This is something extremely important for you to listen to. A very important truth is about to be told, and here it is. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, who sent him, by the way, the Father. See, he still has this Trinitarian view. He still keeps... uh, uh, on display in front of us that relationship with the Father. This is this is upsetting for the Pharisees. That they know who he's talking. They know who he's making himself equal with, as we looked at last week. He who believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So all mankind has fallen and spiritually dead. Jesus comes into the world to raise the spiritually dead to life. That's what we see. Whoever hears my word and believes. So we see some necessary components there, don't we? We understand that we have to believe. But what? What do we have to believe? Because it's, it's not your belief that gets you to heaven. It's the substance and subject of that belief that gets you to heaven. We have to remember that. Romans 10, 13 to 14. So first of all, I can't get past the word hears. Did you go past that to word and believes? We shouldn't, should we? You have to hear the word of God. Whether you're reading it yourself in the privacy of your, your own home, it does, it, you, you need to hear. 
When he speaks, worlds are formed. When he speaks, graves open up. That's the power we're talking about here. So we tread carefully. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not what? Heard. Have to hear. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That doesn't, nece- that doesn't necessarily limit itself to the pulpit, to corporate preaching. It's anybody who is involved with the kerygma, with, with declaring the word. You are ambassadors of Christ who are making declarations. That's you preaching. But they have to hear that's why when some people approach evangelism and without, without bringing them the words of truth that they need to hear to truly become regenerate, it's rather unfortunate, isn't it? They have a fear of man or a desire for their approval or whatever it might be, and they leave out, and typically, the most important parts, man's true condition and so on and so forth. So this kind of hearing that we're talking about here on this point, whoever hears, it's more than just listening. Whoever hears. When When the Bible talks about hearing, it's much more than just listening like you're doing right now. You are to listen with what? Ears to hear. What did Jesus mean by that enigmatic expression? Well, we'll look at that. It's listening, I would say, with great care with great concern and with great desire for the truth. You see, some people will come and they'll listen, but they don't listen with great care. They don't listen with great concern over their soul and their destiny, all the rest of it. And they don't come with desire, a burning desire to know the truth. Jesus said to Jews who believed him in John 8 and verse 31. He said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are disciples of mine. Verse 32, most of some of you have memorized, and then you will have the truth, and it's the truth that will set you free. It's the only way it's going to come. You have to abide in my word. You have to hear the word, but you have to hear with great care, concern, and desire. Lord, I want to know you. I understand I have a problem and all of the rest of it. So it's more than just listening. In Mark 4, for instance, in verse 9 and 23 to 24, these are just parts of, these are just the sections. Listen, he who has an ears, he who has ears, let him hear. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Another, pay attention to what you hear. New King James, take heed to what you hear. NIV, consider carefully what you hear. There isn't anything more important than what you hear from the very lips of the Christ you profess. Nothing. Because your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. J.C. Ryle said, as he defined this type of hearing. It is hearing as a humble scholar, hearing with faith and love, hearing with a heart ready to do Christ's will. This is the hearing that saves. 
It is not enough to hear sermons. We must go much further than this. We must hear Christ. That's who you came to hear. You didn't come here to hear me, did you? As fascinating as I might be, (laughs) as a weird human specimen. No, you came to hear from Christ. He goes on to submit our hearts to Christ's teaching, to sit humbly at his feet by faith and learn of him, to enter his school as penitents and become his believing scholars, to hear his voice and follow him. This is the way to heaven, end quote. The Father said on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? Matthew 17 and verse 5. Jesus is transfigured there. You remember what the Father said? Yeah. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Is that it? Listen to Him. Listen to Him. You remember John 4 when we were there with the Samaritan woman at the well? And we saw that powerful testimony that she had. It's just a... It's one of my favorite gospel stories, the Samaritan woman. Just an amazing testimony that she's given. Runs into Sychar, into the town where the townspeople are that have surely ostracized her. Told her testimony to them. And there are those that believed. And the whole town went out to hear from Jesus. There are those that believe, but then they wanted to hear it themselves we would hear from Jesus they didn't have this book that you and I have that collect codify and coalesce everything that Christ is has said and is saying in real time and will say in the future this book doesn't go out of date does it not at all But you remember verse 40 to 42 when the Samaritans came to him that's Jesus they asked him to stay with them and he stayed with He stayed there two days. Only place in the Gospels where he does this. And many more believed because of his word. Because of his word. So they said to the woman, verse 42, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. They have to hear. They have to hear. They have to hear His Word. They have to hear His Word. And when they hear His Word, they must what? Believe. That's it. That's the extent of it. You have to hear the whole truth. As our our teacher was telling us this morning in first hour, speaking, we were given this gift, he said, of uh, as Charles was explaining it, to, to vocalize truth. We have both the gift of the speaking and the gift of the truth that God has given us and blessed us with it. So we have to hear, and we have to hear the words of Christ, and we must believe when we hear. Again, what's at the end of all this is, is very striking because we're talking about the final day. We're talking about the last day judgment. So we want to pay careful attention, if not for anything else, at least for that. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4 to 5, Paul wrote, in explaining how he preaches, 
Listen to what he says. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of what? Power. That, why? That, here's a purpose clause, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's where it has to rest. You can preach to the cows come home. If God hasn't called you to do so and he's not at work through that, it's not going to mean anything to anybody except when's this guy going to get done? John 6, when we get there, Lord willing, John 6, verse 63, second part, the words that I have spoken, Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Spirit, not Holy Spirit. They're spiritual words. We learned from 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 that the unbeliever doesn't understand. He's spiritually darkened still because they're spiritually discerned. These words of Christ are spiritually appraised. And that's exactly what he's saying there. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Then it says, whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. Now, I want you to note something there, and that is the present possession. The moment a person is justified, the moment a person is saved, as we say, you have eternal life. That's what, he's, that's what the present tense in the Greek means. You have your salvation and mercifully, wonderfully, you have your, eternally, your eternal destiny set for you. Because we've not only died with Christ as Romans 6 unpacks. We've risen already with him. There's a sense in which we are already there. John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Same present tense context. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by our faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In Him, that is Christ, also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's our place in heaven, to the praise of his glory. We don't have to go out searching for a special service where the Holy Spirit will fall on me as though we're still in the book of Acts. You were sealed. You were sealed. He's a guarantor. This is a down payment. This is, this is an engagement ring for his future bride. You're secure. You're his. You have the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed in him. Actually, Romans chapter 8. We were in it this morning, first hour, and it reminded me of this passage. Let me see if I can find it. Romans 8. Back to Romans 8 again.
Romans 8, beginning in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. What does that clearly imply? If you belong to Christ, you have His Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So this just reaffirms what we're reading. This just reaffirms the text we have this morning. Praise the Lord. So you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That promise, of course, is from God, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Verse 25, under the resurrection of the Spirit of man, second part here, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. We want to pay attention to the language there. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live This idea of hearing the voice of Christ when he calls you by name and it's efficacious. In other words, it's effective. Your heart responds to it. It took me till 33. I'm a lot slower than most of you. 33 years old before it's like, wow, that's the Holy One. That's the Son of God who's called me by name and made all of his promises mine, who did not spare his own life, that mine might be spared. Amazing. An hour is coming, he says, and now is here. So he's making it clear that since this is already happening, he's talking about a spiritual resurrection and not the final days. He says, an hour is coming and is now here. He's come. He's about to sacrifice himself. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been proclaiming truth. He's been healing. He's been verifying, vindicating his own claims, the veracity of his divinity. It's already here. It's going to explode when Pentecost comes. But it's, so he's talking about the resurrection of the dead spiritual nature of man. And, and if you're like me, you know the difference from when you were spiritually dead and blind to when he called out to you with the very words of Christ and lit your heart up. You, you, you had light. My people have been plunged into a great darkness and I'm bringing light. And the light comes as we hear his voice. We respond and we follow. That's the principle. So this has already begun. Colossians 2.13 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You who were dead... God made alive together with him. That is the son of God, Jesus Christ, having forgiven us 
all our trespasses. So the hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. The only voice in the universe that can call out to corpses and they're reanimated. They come alive. They respond. Why? Because he has life in him. He can simply... He doesn't even have to speak a word, but the word has the power. He could think it and it would happen, but he can speak the word, Lazarus, come forth. In the final day, as we get to it this morning, all he has to say is, come forth, and every grave opens up. Both categories of people rise, the just and the unjust. Amazing when he comes back. But this, the voice of the Son of God, did you ever wonder, you may not be as strange as I am, hopefully you're not, did you ever wonder why things are put a certain way? I think this is poetic. I think it's beautiful, glorious. The voice of the Son of God, He calls you, calls out your name. And He draws you to Himself. How beautiful is that? How glorious is that? It doesn't get more intimate. We almost blush reading some of the things that we read in the Scripture about His. So this has both immense power and is both immensely powerful and, and intensely personal. This, this speaks to the inner heart of our hearts. This gets a hold of the viscera of our hearts. This generates emotion, passion. This is intense, but this is immense power that's doing it. Who else? Who else has that kind of power? No one. Not even Satan. No one. But the Son of God. John 3.23. Remember this when John the Baptist said this? He was, speaking, he was trying to convince them that he's not the Messiah who has come. So he uses the bride and the bridegroom analogy. But listen to what he says. John 3.29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, so he means to imply, that's, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he said. Why? Because he heard him. He heard him and he saw him. And the voice spoke and he came came alive he rejoices greatly this friend of the bridegroom he hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now complete isn't this beautiful it didn't have to come about this way this is relational friends this is communal this is love no greater love hath a man than he lay down what his life for those that he will call his friends. And all they have to do is believe. Just believe. John 10, the great uh, shepherd, good shepherd passage, right? Verse 2 to 4. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. 
and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Well, I should say so, for they know his voice. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Does that resonate with you? It sure does. Sure it does. This is glorious. This was glorious good news to me in that darkened apartment back in New York City. See, I cried out to him. And he responded, God help me. And he did. His voice, his voice alone has the power to pierce the darkness of our fallen hearts. That darkness and bring life to the deadness of our hearts. Only he has that power. The voice of the Son of God Verse 27 to 28 in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. Notice the possession. I love pointing that out because I love finding it out. He says, My sheep. These are mine. They belong to me. Why do we ever get insecure in our salvation? Read John 10 over and over again until you finally just totally rest. My sheep hear my voice. Listen to what he says. And I know them. This is intimacy, by the way, folks. You can't get more intimate than this. And they follow me. I give them life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And we choose to either dismiss those words or forget about them. It's almost a a strange ramification of our fallenness. It's like people who refuse to be helped. That's what I'm talking about. Because you can read this to them. And it's still, they go back to pining over whether or not, you know, they could lose their salvation or fall away or all of that. When there's such a glorious life to be lived in this same chapter, a life to be lived that's more abundant. Not just to give you life but to give you life abundantly. (laughs) Wow. That's what he says. That's in the next session. Those who hear will live. This is an indicative. This This is of a certainty. A divine from God guarantee. Certainty. In other words, those who do not have ears to hear, they're in churches or wherever, Um, for other reasons, social reasons, whatever the reasons might be, to feel good about themselves because they have friends there and that's mainly what they come for. This is willful rejection. It's they hear the words, but they pass them by. We heard from the psalmist this morning, you've cast my words behind your backs. Wow. There's people that do that. John 5, 39 to 40, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me 
that you may have life. This is the resurrection of the dead spirit of fallen human beings. That's what these verses are for. These two. John 6.33 For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's why he came. That's why the Father granted him judgment and granted him life. The life is in the Father, and it's also given to the Son. The Son has life too. Everything that has to do with the humanity is the love gift from the Father. And so the Son, He gives Him all prerogatives there. The Father does the, the prerogative of giving them life, the prerogative of judging them. It's beautiful. It's glorious. John 6, 47, truly, truly. Notice how many times he says that, by the way, in our topic. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Has, present tense, destiny, locked in. Nobody's snatching it out of his hands. Your soul belongs to him. Second, the reconciliation of the soul of man. So how is it brought about? So we see the resurrection has to happen. The, those who hear with ears to hear my words and believe them have eternal life. How does this brought about? The next two verses. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And that's just what I was talking about. So he is the source of all life. He was there. He was he provided the agency of creation of physical things. Jesus was there at the beginning. He's the agent of creation. He has life in himself. If he says life, it's alive. If he says death, it's dead. Even if it's your favorite maple tree, what can you do? Nothing. Nothing can be done. In him was life. Remember when we were there several months ago? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1, verse 4. I am the way, and you know this verse, the truth and what? The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Father has granted all this to him. This is what we're privy to. This is what we're peering through the window at. This is what we get the curtains pulled back and get invited to be part of what's going on between the Father and the Son. It's glorious. And friends, don't pick up stones. It's about that. It's about them. It's about His glory. It's not primarily about you and I. We have to settle that in our minds. It's a wonderful gift we're given. Make no mistake, why would God even choose to spare me and make me a love gift to his son? I know what I deserve. And yet, he granted us life. John six sixty eight. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, remember when Jesus said, are you, you going to leave too? Because those that when Jesus got done talking, they just, whatever. Those are the ones I'm talking about. They don't have ears to hear. They listen. They hear the words, but it's more than listening. They turn and walk away. Jesus looks at his disciples. Are you going to go too? I think there's some sadness in the Son of Man there. I do. He loves these people. He's there. He's now walking the earth corporeally. He's got a body. And he's there to sacrifice it, to save the lives of those that 
he created. Wow. You remember Peter's answer? When he asked him that? Lord, to whom shall we go? Well, what he says after that is important. It's pertinent to our passage here and what we've been talking about. You have the words of eternal life. And it's more than just reading the words out of a Bible. You've got to read them to somebody who cares, who is concerned, and has the desire. They're going to hear with ears to hear, right? John 10.10, I just mentioned already, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 11.25, I think I cited last week, I am the resurrection, the resurrection spiritually, the resurrection physically. I've come down to make a way for you. I'm going to provide myself as a propitiation for your sins so that you can be declared not guilty. You can be justified and I will get you there. I will get you there. Do you trust me? We talked about trust this morning. Do you trust me? I'll raise you from the spiritual dead blindness that you had and I will raise your body no matter what happens to it. I think we can misunderstand God's power when we say things like, well, what about somebody that's burned up or has his ashes scattered in the ocean? He's not some glorified parts collector. He can speak a word. There you are in perfection. Suitable for a place that he's taking you. Suitable for the place that he's preparing for you. Wow. Wow. I am the resurrection and the life. He can say that with boldness as the Father's granted. It's, it's all accepted within the triune God. Co-eternal, co-essential, co-equal. All three. Amazing. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. First John 5, he finishes up that wonderful gospel of his, or I mean that wonderful epistle of his. First John 5, 11 and 12, and this is the testimony. Here it is. That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. That's the appointment from the Father, the agreement among the Trinity. That's where you'll find it. In none other. Acts 4.12, right? There's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. He will not let you circumvent His Son who has hung on the cross and given His life. There is no other way. Whoever has the Son, he goes on to say, has life. There it is already in the present tense. It's done. It's guaranteed. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We're getting ready to, to go, go into this final section here. Verse 27, first, under the reconciliation of the soul of man. So as the Father has life in Himself, He granted the Son also to have life in Himself, verse 27, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment. I think this is a Father with a smile on His face. If I can say that would be without losing reverence for God, because a Father likes to give His things to His Son. 
I'm giving these to you because I love you. He's saying to his son, Will you go? Yes. I'll send you. And I'm going to give you life. The life that you will impart to them. But you have to make it available. And see, that's the hard part. It's that middle part that's kind of tough. But once you do that, what joy you'll experience. Like he told Mary Magdalene, the first one who sees him post-resurrection out of the tomb, you go tell my brothers. First time he ever calls them that. You go tell my brothers that my father and their father, they're in the family now. This is an adoption situation. This is this is love, familial love. He's given him authority to execute judgment. So he's going to be the judge. Because, why? Because he is the son of man. Why does he say that? He's been referred to as the son of God all along. Because he's also the son of man, isn't he? That hypostatic union, that, that, that union that is just uncomprehensible to the human mind, that he's 100% man and 100% God. That adds up to 200% to me. <laughs> but I'm just a fallen human being. The Bible says it. He's fully man, or he wouldn't have been able to, to be a suitable sacrifice for us. Why is he given all of these roles? Because he's the son of man. He's the son of God who is begotten and says, I will go. I will become incarnate, and I will go, and I will be among them, and I will speak the words. Who did he get the words from? Do you remember? The Father. The Father gave him the words to speak. Not as though he was ignorant of those words, but the Father is granting all of these things within the Trinity. This is an amazing thing to look at. And he's using his words. Remember, he came to do his will. The life was in the Father. The life is in the Son. The words of the Father, the works of the Father are the works of the Son. It's, it's inextricably woven together in this thing that's a mystery to us, which is called the Trinity. Because he's the son of man, he's in this mediatorial role now to save a humanity, right? So it's because Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So as the Father sent the Son as the Son of Man to qualify as the only appropriate, adequate sacrifice for mankind, He's also giving Him authority to execute judgment over that humanity. But that means those who believe and those who don't believe. Those who reject Him. See, that's the thing. Those who reject Him will have to face Him as judge. Think about it. It should be terrifying to you. It should motivate us to plead on behalf of unsaved people that we love. Please, O oh Lord, a terrifying thing to be an unbeliever and see how he looks when he comes back with his sword drawn. You've read Revelation. 
John 12, 49 to 50, For I have not spoken on my own authority, Jesus is saying, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Again, it's not because he's ignorant. This is just the arrangement. You have to understand. This is coming from the Father. And the reason he keeps repeating that is because people, the the religious people there, the Pharisees and so on, know what that means. It means he's making himself equal with God. That's why they have to kill him. But that's in the plan of God, isn't it? He goes on in verse 50, And I know that this his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is what God says, he could say. Because I am. The I am is speaking. John 17, in that beautiful prayer to the Father, in speaking about himself, this role that he has, this begotten as the Son, the Son of God, Son of Man, since you, speaking to the Father, have given him He's referring to himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. This is beautiful. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Third and finally, the retribution of the sovereign to all mankind. Verse 28 and 29. A glorious day and a terrifying day. That last day. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this. Jesus is saying, don't, we would, in our vernacular, we would say, don't freak out here with what I'm about to say. They're finding him incredulous already. They're finding these things too much. So he's saying, now don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all, underline all, who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to resurrection life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, we don't don't use the word retribution too much in our vernacular, and I was worried about... um, it having only negative connotations. But retributive justice is like recompense. You're given what you deserve is the idea. So I put the definition for you. The definition of retribution is the day on which divine reward or punishment will be assigned to men. So we're seeing the retributive justice of God take place as Jesus takes his throne on that last day. That's what we have here. Do not marvel at this. Listen to what I'm saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. Now notice something missing there. How do we know? It's not referring to the spiritual resurrection that's already taking place. I'll tell you, because that verse said, and now is here. This doesn't. He's talking about the last day. He's talking about when he comes back for final judgment. That's what he's talking about. 
I told you there was a lot here. All who are in the tombs or graves, either one, some translations say graves. We're more familiar with that word, and it makes more sense to us because we refer to the earthbound places. We will be interred as graves. All will hear his voice and come out. So Jesus will raise all. He will speak a word, arise, whatever the word is, and the dead will rise. All will rise. Everyone who ever lived. This is an inconceivable plan with incomprehensible power. How do you do that? Well, only God can do that. So all the dead literally rise from the graves in one of only two categories you will fall, and that is the saved or the unsaved. As Paul revealed to Governor Felix at his trial, remember in Acts 24, verse 15, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He's speaking of the final day there. Because remember, they were marveling that he was talking about resurrection. Do you remember in that same trial, he told Felix, he said, don't, don't marvel over the fact that we are resurrected. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be, that shouldn't be strange to you. That shouldn't be something that is impossible in your mind. So understand that a physical form will be raised, one that's suitable for whichever destiny is yours or mine. For instance, for the believer, Philippians 3, verse 20 to 21 says, our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, good. Those who believe, we've gone through that already, and from it we will await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to, make, to be like his glorious body. As 1 John 3 says, right? Verse 2. We will, those, we will be like him. We will be as he is when we see him. This is what he's talking about in that verse. So we will have a body fit for heaven. The lowly body will be transformed to his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So it says those who have done good to the resurrection life and those who have done evil. Well, I can understand those who have done evil, but is... Those who have done good get the resurrection of life. Does that sound like a works-oriented salvation to you? We need to understand something about how we're judged. Why would you judge believers by the good they have done? Well, let's look at a few verses and see if we can work this out according to what Scripture says. John 6, 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's the group we hope to find ourselves. We are assured we find, we'll find ourselves if we believe. Now listen to what Ephesians 2, 8-10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, right? It is a gift of God, not a result of what? Works. 
That's our gospel. So that no one will boast. Now, a, a lot of good believers will memorize those two verses. You should always memorize verse 8 and 9 with verse 10. So in that context, he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship. We are his works, his poema. We are his creation. You remember what Jesus said? My father works and I works. So we can't dismiss all works as bad things. They're a result of something. And he says clearly here, in this passage. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So whatever your station in life, whatever your role in life is, wherever God has you providentially, you're looking for the outworking of the Holy Spirit's prompting in you according to his word so that you might qualify to be fulfilling the good works that he's appointed for you from before he even made the world. That's the concept there. At the end of the great tribulation, Daniel 12 and verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's the two categories put that way by this prophet. Revelation 20 and verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. That's both. It doesn't just say for those who were evil. This isn't talking about salvation. The books, plural, that he's referring to there are a record of every single thing we've ever done in our life. And when we are saved, the things that we do in whatever capacity you're in, whatever context you find yourself providentially, the choices you make and the things that you do are either something that will be rewarded or something that will simply be cast away. Wood, hay, and stubble. It's not precious gems that will last for eternity. So, he says these books were open. That's the record of everything that every human being ever did throughout all time. Is that mind-boggling to you? It is. It's like John ends his gospel. If we were to write down everything that Jesus did, just in the three years he was in his ministry, we wouldn't have enough space for all the books. It'd fill the earth. So these, this is quite a library, as it turns out. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So the dead are judged. He's got the book of life open. Our names written there, hopefully, by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And so the believers find themselves in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. So whether we are at home or away, Paul writes, we make it our aim to please him. So we delight ourselves in the Lord as we said in the first hour. In everything and 
anything and everything, we do our best to be pleasing to Him. That's what verse 9 of 2 Second Corinthians 5 says. We're doing all that we can. As 1 Corinthians 10 says, whether we eat or drink, so even the banal things, the ordinary things, the, the day-to-day things, you can do those. You don't have to go into uh, the ministry. You don't, we, we think that way. We think in boxes. We can be pathetic that way. You can be glorified in whatever capacity that you have because you can glorify God in how you eat and drink. That's the point there. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Both. We're judged by what we've done. We're judged by our works. It's not as though we're cast out of heaven if we did bad things as Christians. You're not getting the point. It's just that with the Holy Spirit in you, in your life, you're seeking to please Him, please God. And the things that we, because we're still, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect in this lifetime. So when you do things that are futile or vain, they don't count for anything, or they're even sinful, those go away because who took the punishment for those? So the punitive aspect for those, if we're talking about sins here, have already been paid, fully paid. So that's not what we're talking about here. You have to be careful. Here's the best way that I could articulate it. I think I have it in the outline for you. And the reason why we're judged by the good things that we've done, because there's no way to measure and weigh the spiritual heart. There's no way to do that other than to note the outcome of our lives. You see that? This is very important to understand. Because people want to beat up on this and say, oh, it sounds like a legalistic, works-oriented. No, we're not talking about that. We've gone over and over what the gospel is. If you hear his words and you believe, you have eternal life. End of story. You're not going to be judged for the sins that you commit in this lifetime, even as a Christian. Okay? That was paid for. And it cost a lot to pay for it. So what has to be looked at, since you can't see a spiritual heart, you can't measure that, it's, you know, how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin? See, it's a non-question. It's like, it's a nonsensical question. Exactly. So how do you measure, how do you judge a spiritual heart? No, it's going to be borne out. We've been given corporeal bodies to give full expression of the true love that resides in our heart. We do that in our marriages. We do it with our children. Our bodies are meant for Him to speak the truth in love, to serve the widow and the orphan, to feed those who are hungry, to give a cup of water to somebody who's thirsty, and all the rest of it. Those are things that are pleasing to Him. That brings Christ alive, and they need Him alive in you because the dead can't see Him. Any other way, because it's a spiritual enterprise. It's that important that we mind our words. That's why every word will be judged, Matthew 12. That's why. That's why. I want to hear my words come from you. Let your words be 
gracious. Let them be seasoned with salt. Let no corrupt or unwholesome word proceed from your mouth except that what is useful to edify, to build up my people that I love. I'm not there doing it. I'm at the right hand of the Father, but I dwell in you. Speak for me. Those are the things that are looked at. When we can turn around and see other souls in glory that God used us instrumentally to have an impact on, that's what we're talking about, friends. That's what we're talking about. I can't think of anything better to devote your life to in whatever capacity. You don't have to all run off and join a seminary. (laughs) He has you right where he wants you. 1 Corinthians 7, where they're all writing to Paul saying, well, you know, is it more spiritual not to get married? Is it more spiritual? Should I get divorced? Because it'd be more spiritual if I was a... He said, remain as you are. Who put you in that place? Who gave you the exact parameters of the capacities that you have? Use them for his glory. That's it. That's it. Resurrection judgment. A few more verses to cite to you and we're done. John three eighteen to 21. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. He didn't come to condemn them. They're, we're already prejudged because we're fallen. Because he has not believed. That's how he'll be judged. If, he's not, if he doesn't believe, he's condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the, son, of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. How in the world couldn't they reject this offer? Oh, it says... Because their deeds were evil. What a trade. What a deception. What self-delusion to live under in this life, to satiate the flesh when the light has come. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds, his deeds have been carried out by God. Isn't that remarkable? If I were God, I'd have sent, I'd have sent Michael, Gabriel, straighten things out down here, right? Flaming swords drawn. He uses us. Let him. Let him. His deeds are carried about by God. Oh, that just made me think of something. So when we get to heaven and we get the reward, what do we have to do with it? This belongs to you. You did this through me. Thank you for taking this wretched life and doing anything that you would consider worthwhile. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, because that's where the good deeds come, when we obey, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
John 8, 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. All deeds are there. One more and we pray. 1 John 2, 28 to 29, and we close. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his, at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We've been given a lot to think about. Let's pray and take this time after this sermon, this time that we take to reflect on these things, and let's reflect hard on where we stand with all the things that God has given us here this morning. Father, thank you so much for your patience with us. Thank you, O Lord. This is a lot. This is a lot for us to metabolize. We'll have to chew on this for quite a while. So may we not forget, leave this house and forget the things that you so patiently and so joyfully imparted to us. Lord, be glorified in us. For those who have not known you in the way that you've disclosed yourself, revealed yourself here today, I pray that now would be the time because destiny hangs in the balance. And so may we never grow weary or tired of praying for those that we love who are lost and don't know you, that you too might shed a great light in their hearts and reveal yourself to them. This we ask for your glory's sake. In the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.